It is a blessing and a privilege to be with you, and I am not unaware at how large the shoes are that generally stand behind this pulpit. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 8. If you want to turn there, I want to turn to the Lord in prayer and beg him for help. So please pray. Our gracious Lord, we bless you for this morning. Lord, that we get to gather in your midst, that we get to sing worship and praise to you who has secured our salvation in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for your word, that you have not left us without a guide for living the Christian life, that you have not left us without a guide to our salvation, Lord, that you have given us this word to direct our paths. We pray, Lord, that you would be in our midst, that you would speak to us through your word, Lord, that you would save the, the, the lost, Lord, that you would convict your children here, Lord, that you would move us all on this road of discipleship as we pursue Christ, the, the great treasure and inheritance of our salvation. Lord, we pray this all in Jesus' name. So this morning we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. So if you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn there now. I am sure you have heard the phrase that context is king, and that is especially true in our passage this morning. You see, the Gospels can be pretty challenging because there are several layers of emphasis that we can tease out of them. This morning, I'm going to be talking about two of them. First, you have Matthew's emphasis to explain who Jesus is. This, in fact, is the purpose behind all of the gospel literature, and that is namely to provide an eyewitness account of the actions and words of Jesus so we can see that he is God the Son incarnate. Now, the second theme that runs side by side is the discipleship. At every point that we see the glory of Jesus presented in the gospel, we must be asked the question, do I believe this? What is my response to what Matthew is presenting for me? And so, to begin, I want to do a brief survey of the first eight chapters of Matthew so that we can get our bearings to see who has he already said that Jesus is and then what is he saying to us in Matthew chapter 8 that is going to flesh out this picture of Christ. So, put your seatbelts on and hang on because we're going to move through these chapters pretty quickly. First, Matthew begins chapter 1, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you're like me, the temptation at this point is to just sort of jump over most of chapter 1, because, I mean, who really likes to read genealogies? Anybody? Generally, no. But in this introductory phrase, Matthew has already made profound statements about the subject of his book, namely, Jesus Christ. First, the word Christ meaning Messiah or anointed one, the Messiah as presented in the Old Testament was the one in whom the hope of the future restoration of Israel was bound up. The appearing of the Messiah or the Christ was for the Jews the point at which the Lord would make all things right and establish his kingdom in righteousness. Now that was not separate from God placing a king on the throne, and that is where Matthew goes next. Matthew goes from Jesus the Christ and ties Jesus then to the lineage of David. 
Now, if you remember from the Old Testament, David was the great king of the Jews whom the Lord promised would have an everlasting dynasty in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Throughout the Old Testament, the Messiah is tied to the throne of David as the future coming king of Israel. Here, the promised king is identified as Jesus. Finally, Matthew identifies Jesus as the son of Abraham. Abraham, if you remember, was, the prom- was promised an offspring that would be a blessing to the nations. More specifically, it was through Abraham's offspring that the Lord would overturn the curse that was placed upon humanity and the entire world in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam sinned. We all know, of course, that Abraham's son failed. Abraham's grandchildren failed. The nation of Israel failed. But here we have Jesus Christ being presented as the true son of Abraham, the one through whom the blessing would come, the one through whom the curse would be overturned. And so you can see just simply in this first verse, Matthew has already made massive claims about who Jesus Christ is. He is the one who would overturn the curse. And then from there... Matthew plays the part of Ancestry.com, providing the genealogical tie from Abraham through David to Christ. Later in chapter 1, Joseph is told to name his son Jesus because he will be the one who saves his people from their sins. Later in that same passage, Jesus is called Emmanuel, God with us. He will be the one who will conquer the greatest enemy of his people, their sins and death. Fundamentally, only God is able to do this. And that is where you have the identification that Jesus Christ is God with us. Now briefly, chapter 2, at his birth, Jesus is worshipped by these pagan wise men. And at his baptism in chapter 3, he is anointed by the Holy Spirit. And a voice from heaven declares, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Further demonstrating for us the significance of this man in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 4, Jesus is led into the wilderness where he fasts for 40 days and is tempted by Satan himself in every way that we ourselves are tempted. And yet Jesus is without sin. He does not stumble at a single point demonstrating that Jesus Christ is perfect righteousness. Then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus stands on a mountain, much like Moses, and declares a word to his people. All of the prophets, all of the teachers who came before Jesus at this point would have spoke on behalf of the Lord, saying things like, thus declares the Lord, or thus says the Lord. But Jesus stands before the people, declaring on his own authority, truly I say unto you. That's significant. The people recognize this. And at the end of chapter 7, Matthew writes, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Now it is this theme of authority that Matthew begins to hint at here at the end of chapter 7 that is the context in which our passage is located this morning. Matthew has been making the point that this man, Jesus, is more than a mere man. 
Jesus is the awaited Messiah, the son of David, who will sit on the throne and rule the nations. This man is more than simply man. This man is God, the son incarnate. Now that was a lot of information. But it's necessary for us to see, as, as Matthew is unfolding the authority of Jesus, who does Matthew believe that Jesus is? Matthew believes that Jesus is God, and therefore Jesus' authority is the very authority of God. And so we're going to pick up with this image of Jesus, but don't forget that as we picture, picture Jesus in this text, we cannot forget to also pick up the theme of discipleship. We have the, the presentation of the authority of Christ, but how do we respond to that? What exactly does this mean for us? And so let's pick up with Matthew in chapter 8, verses 18 through 22. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side, that is, of the sea. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. The first point this morning, the normal Christian life is living in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus has demonstrated his authority through his teaching and through working miracles. And now he has commanded the disciples to board a boat and to travel to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples obey. We are not told where the boat came from. We are not told where they are headed other than to the other side. And we are given no reason as to why they are going. Simply get in the boat and go. Two men hear Jesus' command and they approach him and they want to follow. Now here, every good Baptist preacher is taught that you need to be ecstatic. You need to rush these men down the aisle. You need to pray the prayer. You need to carry their luggage on the boat and be just overjoyed that they're there with you. But notice, that's not Jesus' response here, is it? He does not rush them forward. Jesus here does not even extend an invitation. Instead, Jesus warns these men. You see, Jesus was not roaming around the countryside pining for followers. He wasn't just begging people to jump on his cause and partner with him. The road of discipleship is long and hard, and many people who set out on it fall away from it. Discipleship is not simply praying a prayer and then going to church on Christmas and Easter. Discipleship is submitting every area of your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ so that you begin to resemble your Master. And that is what Jesus is going to call these men to. The first man who approaches Jesus in verse 19 is a scribe. The scribes and the Pharisees would have been part of the upper crust of the religious elite in Israel at this time. And generally, Matthew presents the scribes and the Pharisees as a group who are opposed to the mission and work of Jesus. But here we appear to have an exception, right? Because this scribe addresses Jesus as teacher, which is significant because throughout the gospel of Matthew, those who are committed followers of Christ never address him as teacher. Scribes, Pharisees, others will address Jesus as teacher, but Jesus' followers exclusively address him as Lord. 
This man says, teacher, I want to follow you wherever you go, which seems to be a very committed statement. He wants to follow Jesus wherever he goes. But Jesus sees through this, right? He sifts through it. He gets to the heart in verse 20. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Now, what is Jesus saying to this man? You cannot be a disciple if you own a house. No, I don't think that Jesus is here laying waste to home ownership. I think Jesus' point is much deeper than whether or not we should own houses. Think for a moment. For a fox, what does the hole represent? For a bird, what does their nest represent? Much more than simply a place to lay their head. It is a place of comfort. It is a place of peace. It is a place of security, a place of safety, a place to rest. More than a house, it is a home. Jesus is not simply saying, if you want to follow me, you need to sell your house and become homeless. Jesus is saying that if you follow me, you will be displaced. You will be like a foreigner and an exile, even in your homeland. Submitting to the lordship of Jesus is not simply turning away from sin. It is that, but it is not only that. Submitting to the lordship of Jesus is swearing allegiance to another king, to another kingdom, and following the rule and reign and law that Jesus has set down in his word. Before coming to Christ, we were all slaves of sin. We were prisoners of our lust and desires. Our priorities and our values flowed out of that. What we wanted to get out of life was located and directed by the sinful inclinations of our heart. When we turn to Christ, we no longer submit to the authority of Satan and sin, but we are translated, that is, transferred into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of righteousness, and we become servants of the king of the universe. That is why submitting to the lordship of Jesus will change every relationship that you have. And at the heart, that's what Jesus is getting at in this passage. Not just don't own a home, but that if you follow me, you will be an exile. You will be a stranger, a wanderer in this land. This will change your relationship to how you use time. This will change the the idea that you have of how you will use money, your possessions. It will change your relationship with your family, your co-workers, and even your friends. Submission to Christ is a radical reorientation of your entire life around the person and authority of Jesus. Now, as a fixture in Israel's cultural center, this scribe that Jesus is addressing here has a lot to lose by following Jesus. He would not just be sacrificing a house. He would be sacrificing his position within the community. He would be sacrificing his status, perhaps his job, even maybe family and friends. I have read, and I'm sure we have all heard stories of high-powered businessmen, of uh, attorneys, uh, high-powered businesswomen who have built lucrative careers on basically cheating people or taking advantage of people through breaking contracts. And upon coming to Christ... Everything is turned around. They must quit their job and and find a different course. Zacchaeus, for us in the New Testament, is a perfect example of this. He was a tax collector, a swindler. And when he committed to following Jesus, he devoted himself to repaying every single person that he had wronged. That cost Zacchaeus a lot. But that is the normal Christian life. Submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
alongside this warning that discipleship will cost this man his worldly status, Jesus tells this man who it is that he is asking to follow. So remember, with discipleship, you have the presentation of the glory of Christ. Now remember, so here Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. This is a reference to the book of Daniel, which we just read earlier. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man is the universal king who has an everlasting kingdom who will rule all nations, all people, and all languages. Jesus has rights over the entire world. Jesus has rights over the entire universe, and yet he tells this man that he has nowhere to lay his head. Generally, how do earthly kings and rulers use their power and their authority? Often, they will use their position as an opportunity for financial gain and personal power. Even in America, think about how many senators and representatives live higher on the hog than the majority of the people that they serve. I would guess that it's the majority. Jesus, the king of the universe... The one who is worthy of all praise, all acceptance, all worship is standing before this man saying, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is saying to this man, if you will follow me, you must do exactly what I have done. That is what discipleship is. It is looking like Jesus Jesus is not asking his followers to give more than he himself has given, which should cause us to marvel at his humility and at his compassion. What a glorious and righteous king that we serve. Brothers and sisters, may we strive to emulate him in true discipleship as those who have given up everything to love and serve Jesus by loving and serving him, by loving and serving the church, our families, and our neighbors. Discipleship will cost you everything. In that, it will point you to live as Jesus Christ himself lived. Matthew is going to show us this point from a different angle here in the next two verses, 21 and 22. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now, there are a few important things to note from these two verses. First, this passage makes Jesus seem a little bit harsh, doesn't it? And so many scholars will try to soften this question, or this this response of Jesus, by questioning the sincerity of the man asking to follow Jesus. I, however, think that such debates are missing the point of this passage. You see, this passage is not highlighting the motives or intentions of those seeking Jesus. Rather, this passage is highlighting the cost and the authority of Jesus Christ himself. This passage stands, I think, as an example of what Jesus says a little later on in chapter 10, verses 37 through 39. There Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This man is being presented with the authority of Christ. And Jesus here is setting himself on a higher plane, on a higher level than even the closest family relationships. For the disciple, Jesus is more important than any family tie. I know brothers and sisters coming out of Islam who have been disowned by their parents because they have renounced Allah to follow Jesus. One sister that I know was going back to visit her family in Nigeria and she was legitimately concerned that they might, um, that they might not spare her life because of her renunciation of Islam. Discipleship will cost you everything. But the point is, when Jesus calls, you go, no matter the difficulty, no matter the cost. And this man finds himself in some legitimately difficult circumstances. His father has just passed away. And for the Jews during this time, caring for and burying your parents in their final moments was the last act of obeying the commandment, honor your father and mother. Jesus says to this man, let the dead bury their own dead. Or to put it differently, let those concerned with worldly matters deal with worldly matters. If you come after me, you must set your heart on heavenly things. In Matthew 8, 18 through 22, Matthew is demonstrating that Jesus has the authority to demand everything of you. And that true discipleship, that is the normal Christian life, is the living in submission, total submission to the, to the lordship of Jesus. That today is tied to the word of God, the Bible. Today we don't have Jesus standing in our midst speaking audibly to us. But we have Jesus speaking to us through the word of God. Jesus is presently extending his rule and reign through the proclamation of the gospel and through the proclamation of his word. And the call is still to submit your life to him. Do not withhold any compartment. Do not withhold any area of your life or think that somehow Jesus will leave a stone unturned. His, role, his rule must be totally extended to every aspect of your life. I find that in this endeavor, questions can be very helpful. And so some of the questions that I ask myself and I want to ask you this morning. How does your life reflect the rule of Jesus in your relationship to your spouse? How does your life reflect the rule of Jesus and submission to the word of God in your relationship to your children? How does your life reflect the rule of Jesus in the use of your free time? In your relationship with your co-workers and bosses or for bosses, your employees? That is only the beginning of the questions that we could ask to apply this text. And we must ask ourselves these questions. Presumably, these men were asking themselves whether or not following Jesus was worth it. And interestingly, Matthew never tells us whether these two men get in the boat or not. And I think that is intentional so that we are forced to ask ourselves, have I counted the cost? Have I surrendered my allegiance to this world for the glory of a better king ruling over a better kingdom? 
And though we are not told about these men, we are told in verse 23 that some disciples do follow Jesus onto the boat. So look at verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Very simply, they counted the cost and they went. And now let's look at where Jesus leads them. Verses 24 and 25. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, that is Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. These men have counted the cost. They have counted their lives lost for the sake of knowing Christ. They have followed him. And look where Jesus leads them. Jesus leads them straight into the jaws of a ship-destroying storm. Is that ironic at all? I, I think this is intentional on the part of Christ, and I think this is intentional on the part of Matthew for putting these, these pericopes right next to each other. And that, that makes the second point this. The normal Christian life is following Jesus through the storm. Think for a moment about the men on the boat. The most prevalent occupation that we are told of Jesus' disciples through the Gospels is that they are fishermen, right? Now, in this day, fishing was an apprentice occupation that was passed on from father to son. So these men have been on the Sea of Galilee with their fathers from a presumably very young age learning the trade of fishing, learning how to do the rigging, how to handle the boat, learning the waters, they, they were very familiar with the Sea of Galilee. And if you know anything about the Sea of Galilee, you know that its storms can be whipped up very quickly. The Sea of Galilee is a shallow body of water, which means that waves can be generated easily. If you think about the difficulty of trying to generate waves in an Olympic-sized swimming pool versus your bathtub, it's way easier in the bathtub. The Sea of Galilee is shallow, but not only that, it sits in a basin surrounded by mountains all around it. So you have cooler air on top of the mountains mixing with warmer air around the Sea of Galilee, which causes storms to rise up very violently and very quickly. These men knew the sea. They knew the storm. They knew their boat. They knew the rigging. But this time it was different. The storm was great and the winds and the waves were battering the helm to the point that they thought the ship was going to sink. With wind whipping, with rain driving, you can imagine the chill running through the disciples as their hands were struggling to maintain their grasp on the ropes. And for all their effort, all of their back-breaking labor, the situation was getting worse and worse until finally they thought all was lost. They had given up everything to follow Jesus. In obedience, they had boarded the boat and he has led them straight into the heart of a storm. And look at where Jesus is, right? This is a a perfect picture of sleeping in perfect peace as this boat is being nearly capsized by the wind and the waves. You see, Jesus knew that this was not the end of the story. But the disciples didn't. They thought this storm was going to bring the whole project to a, a screeching halt to its final conclusion. And it is not an accident that this text follows on the heel of the text, the call to count the cost of following Jesus. You see, the the journey of discipleship is not a journey that's padded, nor is it a journey with buffer zones from the world. The path of discipleship is fraught with danger. It's fraught with challenges, with suffering, with struggles, with suffering. 
As one of my professors used to say, if the rock hasn't dropped on you yet, it will. Storms will rage all around us and we will feel like the disciples clinging to the ropes for dear life. And we may even ask ourselves at points, why did I even get on this boat? But the storms of life are not accidental to discipleship. But they are instrumental means that the Lord uses to demonstrate and to refine our faith. You see, how we weather storms is a critical indicator of the truthfulness of our discipleship. We are all familiar with the parable of the sower casting seeds on various kinds of soil. The seeds represent the preaching of the gospel and the soil represents how people respond to it. And Jesus explains to the disciples, this is from the gospel of Luke. And the ones, that is the seeds, cast on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while and in a time of testing fall away. The seed that is spread on the rocks fall away in a time of testing. That word can be used to refer to calamity, affliction, trial, Any sort of test that functions to reveal the genuineness of faith like gold in a refiner's fire. This word testing comes up in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. You see, the normal Christian life is lived in the crucible of trial. Fiery trials are the expectation. Also note that this word does not denote simply the trial of persecution, though that is included. But various kinds of trials. As James says in, his, in the first chapter of his book, whether the trial is a struggle against sin or de- the death of a loved one or the loss of a job or even a horrible job, testing that comes by trial, whatever that trial is, is the expectation. Listen to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Contrary to much of American Christianity... The Bible teaches that the road of discipleship is marked by suffering and servitude, not prosperity and health. Eventually, the rock will drop on all of us. The storm will rage. It will bring us to the very end of our concept of self-sufficiency. It will bring us to the very end of our idea of strength and our ability to save ourselves. And we will cry out in desperation like the disciples, Lord, save us. We are perishing. Running alongside following Jesus through the storm, the normal Christian life also gives us a picture of what does it mean to follow Jesus through the storm And that is that we would cling to Jesus in the midst of the storm. The disciples have been struggling against this storm all the while Jesus is asleep. And sometimes when we encounter storms, it feels like Jesus is asleep in our boat too, doesn't it? He doesn't always answer our prayers immediately. Sometimes even when he does answer our prayers, they're not in the ways that we would like him to answer them. Sometimes we cry out over and over and over for months and even years, pleading and waiting with nothing. 
I often think of Job in this respect. Within the first two chapters of the book of Job, Job has lost absolutely everything. He's lost his family, he's lost all of his possessions, and he's lost his health. And he's sitting there, and then his friends come in an effort to help him. They accuse him of wrongdoing and say, why did you bring this upon yourself? That lasts for 36 more chapters. Two chapters of destruction, 36 chapters of misery. The Lord again shows up in chapter 38. 36 chapters, when you're reading through it, seems like a long time. I can't imagine what it was like in real time as Job is sitting there pleading that he might stand before the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the only hope that we have in the midst of storms like that is to cling fast to Jesus Christ by clinging to his word. Crying out, Lord, save us. And Jesus may not always calm the storm, does he? He does here for the disciples, but he doesn't always in our lives. Not every single prayer is answered with just exactly the answer that we want. Sometimes healing doesn't come. But we can have confidence that the storm serves in a purpose for God's plan for us. And we must rehearse the promises of God, the word of God to ourselves as we fight through these storms. Verses like Psalm 73, verses 25 through 26. There the psalmist says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The storm may take everything from you, but it cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Or think of a verse like Romans 8, 28, and I know that this verse can seem cliche because we hear it so often, but I think that this verse is the ground of Christian hope in the midst of a storm. And we know That for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. In the midst of a storm like the disciples are going through, it can seem purposeless. Why is this happening now? It can seem like that in our own lives. As we receive a terrible diagnosis or as one of our friends or family members receives a terrible diagnosis. But this verse gives us hope. It gives us the promise that there is a purpose behind the suffering. That this suffering hasn't just come upon us randomly, but there is a God with authority over this suffering. Words and promises like these give us ground to stand on in the midst of the storm. And it is to these promises that we must hold fast, that we must build the sails of our ship upon. That is the normal Christian life. Following Jesus through the storm, knowing that it is for our refining and for our good, and clinging to Jesus in the midst of the storm because Jesus has the power and authority over these storms of life. The disciples cry out. They wake Jesus up. And now, I'm not really sure what they were expecting Jesus to do, but I don't think it was what Jesus did here in these verses. They woke him saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing in verses 26 and 27. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Jesus stands in the boat. The first thing he does is he rebukes the disciples, and then he rebukes the storm. 
First, the disciples. This is something that has always puzzled me. Because you have these disciples who have been waging war against this storm. Their their nerves are frayed. Their muscles are tense. They're probably freezing from being battered by the wind and the rain all night. And Jesus stands and says, why are you afraid? In my mind, I'm thinking, I know exactly why I'm afraid. Because I think I'm going to die. And as I have mulled over this, the more I have come to see that this... Is, it is a proper rebuke. I do believe that the disciples were lacking faith in this moment. But I believe that for us, this rebuke is a grace. Because Jesus rebukes the disciples. But then what does he do next? Does he jump off the boat, say, sayonara, I'm going to go find people who really believe in me? No. Jesus rebukes the disciples and then he stands and calms the winds and the waves. You see, Jesus does not demand from his followers a perfect faith, which is a promise to us because how many times in the midst of the storm are you sitting there thinking, really? Is this really going to work out, Lord? Are you really going to answer this prayer? Maybe you're all better Christians than me, but that's often where I find myself. If Jesus only answered our prayer based upon perfect faith, none of my prayers would be answered. But the grace is this. That Jesus hears the cry of, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. How many times have we prayed in the midst of the trial, in, in a, a, a not faithless, but in a, a faith and doubt mingled prayer? Keep praying. The Lord hears and honors such prayers. Again, I'm not sure what the disciples were expecting Jesus to do. But based upon their response to what he did, I don't think it was this. They stand in awe and marvel as Jesus calms the storm. And I think that they stand in awe and marvel because they have been reading verses from the book of Psalms like this. Psalm 107, verse 24 through 29. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy winds which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. The men standing in the boat, the man standing in the boat with the disciples was the one who Psalm 107 says is the Lord of nature. The one standing in the boat with the disciples had more power than the storm that was assailing the boat. And the disciples marvel at his authority. They marvel at his power, at this small glimpse of the glory of Christ. And that is where this passage culminates. You begin with the cost of discipleship. You might be saying, discipleship is expensive. It's going to cost me a lot. What is it worth? And here we conclude with the reward of discipleship. If you leave everything and follow Jesus, what is the reward? The reward is this, that we receive Jesus Christ Himself as our Lord and Savior, that we receive Him as our eternal inheritance and joy. The value of this is highlighted even more as the theme of authority is continued on into chapter 9 of the book of Matthew. In 9.6, there Jesus says that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. 
You see, the storm that the disciples faced was powerful. But there are undercurrents of a much more fearsome storm that is going to arise. These undercurrents run through the Old Testament, and that storm is the storm of God's just wrath against sin. Each and every one of us has sinned against God. Each and every one of us have failed to acknowledge that God is the sovereign creator and Lord. Every single one of us has failed to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have failed to love our neighbor as ourself. We have broken God's commandments. And because of that, we have stored up for ourselves the storm of God's righteous and holy anger against sin. This storm may seem a long way off, but it will break upon our ships in a moment. And that storm is not a storm that we could weather. Like the disciples standing in that boat on their own, this storm will utterly crush those who try to face it on their own. Because no one can make atonement for their own sins. No one can warrant forgiveness from God on their own. But Jesus... Just as he stood in the midst of the boat with his disciples, calming the winds and the waves, has brought the sins of his people to nothing. Jesus was righteous. He was spotless. He was perfect before the Lord, never once sinning against his father in thought, word, or deed. For 33 years, this king of the universe, this one who was awesome in glory and majesty, lived in service to his father and to his people. The final act of this earthly ministry was culminated in Jesus taking upon the sins of his people and running headlong into that storm of God's wrath where it was poured out every drop upon his head and shoulders until he was crushed into nothing. He was mocked. He was scorned, he was beaten and bruised, he was hung upon a cross where the wrath of God was poured out upon him. The wrath that his people deserved. And from that cross, as he's hanging there, he declares, it is finished. The storm is calm. Jesus was buried, but he didn't stay in the ground. On the third day, he rose again to new life, demonstrating that the wrath of God had been assuaged, that the debt had been paid, and that through faith in Christ, we too can have hope of eternal life. That, brothers and sisters, is the reward of discipleship. Our ultimate goal, that we would be partakers with Jesus Christ. That He would be our great high priest and our advocate before the Father. That we would have free access to boldly approach the throne of grace. That we are brought into the love of God, the loving communion of God through the rent body and indwelling spirit. And if you are with us this morning and you don't know this promise, if you are with us this morning and and you don't know Jesus, you haven't set out on this cost, on this road to discipleship, we invite you, find someone to speak with this morning. There are many people here who would love to speak with you. I'm here, but there are many. And brothers and sisters, my final word for us is this. Pursue Christ. Submit every area of your life to His Lordship and follow him through the storms of life, knowing that those storms are for the purpose of refining you and they are for your good. 
Look forward to the ultimate hope of your possession, which is the glory of God in Christ Jesus, and that we would be partakers of his. Please pray with me. Our glorious Lord, we thank you for this word, for this revelation of who you are. Lord, but most of all, we thank you for the suffering that you underwent on our behalf. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that you paid. We thank you for the blood that you shed. Lord, we thank you for the salvation that can be had in you. I pray, Father, that we would go from your midst, Lord, that you would rule through your word working in our lives and that this church, Lord, that all of us present here would become a better image of you to the surrounding neighborhoods, to our neighbors, to our coworkers, Lord, to our friends and to our family. Lord, help us to see the sacrifice that you paid and this life of service that you lived, Lord, and may we emulate that, not because we are trying to to merit good works, Lord, but because you did the same thing and we, in discipleship to you, Lord, want to exemplify that in our lives. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.